You're listening to Changing Reality. Changing Reality, where we bend reality all across the world. Only on WQHS Radio. So hi everyone and welcome back to another episode of Changing Reality. Welcome one, welcome all. If this is the first time you guys are tuning in on the show, that's really sad. What have you been doing with all of your free time? You're supposed to be here listening. But yeah, <laughs> anyway, welcome to Changing Reality. This is a show that features phenomenal people from all walks of life who are in essence changing their own reality. And through this show, we have a brilliant opportunity to hang out and interview some people who have truly been making waves in the lives of those around them. We'll be talking to entrepreneurs, social change makers, business owners, industry leaders, even artists, musicians, and inspiring individuals from all across the world, and many of whom have spent time here on the Penn campus as well. And by hearing these inspiring stories on how they managed to change their lives and the lives of those around them as well, hopefully we'll get a little bit of a glimpse into what we can do to chart our own course in a sense, and that that journey of our lives becomes a little bit more clear in a sense. And I wanted to do this show simply because I feel like there are a lot of people out there who do phenomenal things and make waves in the lives of those around them. And I'm super passionate about learning these stories so that we can learn from their mistakes, their successes, the things that they've done, and shorten our own learning curve. And I've seen the power of stories change not only my own life, but the lives of so many individuals around me. I actually founded a youth movement called Ascendance back in Malaysia, which is where I'm from, that today collaborates with over, um, I think, 28 different countries. We work with the Malaysian Ministry of Education. We basically provide an alternative education platform for any student who wants to change their reality. And we've been fortunate to work with students from elementary all the way up to college through various sessions, programs, experiential learning activities, projects that help them discover what they love doing, learn about themselves and the world around them, and start their own careers while they're still in school that has meaningful impact for themselves and for those around them. And the reason we've been able to do all of that is because of stories, it's because of kind individuals who've taken their time to actually share their experiences and impact someone else's life. And through that, because of the things we've done, we've actually been like fortunate to work with over 35,000 students, 970 communities, 28 countries, and incubate countless number of social run projects and social enterprises run by students as young as 8 to 25 years old. So just like that, I hope that this show provides that same platform for all of you so that through the things that you learn from these interviews, through the conversations that you get to listen to, hopefully you guys get inspired or get the tools that you need to kickstart your own journeys, to shorten your own learning curves, and more importantly, figure out what you love in a sense and how you can create that reality. So on to today's uh, session, you guys know, as always, if you want anything from us, you can let us know in the comments, you can uh, tell us down below, and we'll try to incorporate as much as what you guys want to learn as we can into the show. But today, as I said, we have someone truly phenomenal with us gracing our screens in our interview. We speak today to Taylor Durham, a communications and marketing expert with over 11 years of experience creating and developing marketing initiatives for various centers, programs, and much more to raise and boost engagements for his organizations. He joined Penn Wharton Entrepreneurship in 2018 and started off as the Associate Director of Communications. And even in his previous roles, has been known for doing phenomenal things. He actually assisted in the redesign of the city of Pittsburgh's cable bureau. And he basically brought all of these, uh, I think, analog things to digital operations, bringing their stand, uh, their, the work that they do up into the 21st century's industry standards, in a sense. And he was very, very, I would say, his, that's only the beginning of his many achievements. He's uh, also run his own production and post-production company called Dark Horizon. Horizon Studios that has for several years uh, out of Pittsburgh helped over 30 uh, brilliant projects in a sense that include print and digital media, commercials, PSAs, documentaries, and much more. He created a marketing toolkit for small businesses transitioning into the digital and online marketing world. He's generated, I think, 20% increase in leads and viewership on web platforms for many of these clients, and he's done so many phenomenal things. He even briefly had a stint at iHeartMedia, where he worked with small businesses and corporations to build on-air digital ad campaigns that have targeted, I think, populations of over 1.2 million people. So just like that, he's also self-taught in coding, web design, digital marketing, has aided nonprofits and companies alike, 
And today we are very lucky to not only have him as the Director of Marketing and Digital Studies here at Venture Lab at the Wharton School, but also we are lucky to have him as a guest on our show today. So without further ado, let's welcome our phenomenal guest speaker onto our virtual stage himself. So hello, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm great. Thank you once again for joining in today. I know that you're working from home so that hopefully we didn't disrupt your schedule too much with this interview. No, no, not at all. Not at all. It's uh, Even though I will admit that most days have been busy since we've kind of opened up Venture Lab and opened up Tangent Hall, it's a nice slow Monday and it's the summer, so it definitely helps. <laughs> Summer, yeah. Okay, before we jump into the interview, I have got to ask, how is like the campus like during the summer in a sense? Like, is there still like lots of people? Like, is it a lot more chill or is it just like business as usual? Um, I think it's going to depend on who you ask, really. I mean, for us and for my you. team, <laughs> yeah. but for us and my team, um, entrepreneurship is 24-7. So even though you guys really aren't here maybe as much as you are during the school year, we're still pretty busy in the summer. Um, we still do have a cohort that runs in the summer as part of our VIP program. We still do have other opportunities and events happening in the summer months, but they are more strategically tailored to the students that are already in the program versus the academic year where we're using those programs to kind of raise awareness and kind of get more students involved. Um, so that being said, right now, I mean, I've been on campus maybe two days a week for the last year or so because of this whole hybrid work from home situation, which we've all fully embraced. Um, it's mostly quiet. It is. And also, we're also on 40th Street. So it's very quiet where we're at on our side. <laughs> OK, well, I'm, I'm glad to know that it's a bit of a reprieve, but I mean, it, it doesn't seem to make much difference for you guys. Know. I heard that you had new equipment arriving at the studio, that you've been mm -hmm. uh, revamping a lot of things. Tell us a little bit about that in a way. And, and what can we expect when we uh, appear in the fall? Will, will the whole hall be kind of like taken down and rebuilt? Well, what is kind of being done during the summer and that we can look forward to? Gotcha. So over the summer, um, a couple of spaces are getting a couple big updates. Our studio space is one of them. So I oversee two studios on, on at Tangent Hall. One is for traditional media, graphic, web, video production. The other one is more of a studio that's around, let's say, brand and creative strategy. Um, the former is a pure production studio. When you walk in the studio this year versus last year, we had some makeshift equipment that we used to kind of help with small batch content marketing. Um, but what we realized is that the demand for the space had outgrown our capacity to actually serve the community. So instead, we decided to split up the studio across multiple rooms on the fourth floor of Tangent Hall. And in doing so, we made the larger space you walk in, it's just a complete soundstage. We have um, a 13, we put about what, $40,000 worth of upgrades into that space. Um, that's not accounting like actual like equipment like cameras and lenses and stuff like that. We're talking mainly lights, rigging, um, grips, flags, et cetera. So our goal with this is to actually expand the use of the space to do more large scale production, more animation, more motion typography, <clears throat> more documentary interviewing, more documentaries overall about entrepreneurship innovation. The other space is more focused on being a help desk. Um, so I have about five work study students and then I'll have about maybe 10, I think in the fall. But each one of those students has a has a different skill set across all the different spectrums of media marketing. But what we're doing now is making a help desk that rotates Monday through Friday, hopefully from 11 to 7 p.m., where any student on campus can come up to 404 in the building. And if they have an idea about a logo, about a landing page, a website, anything, you'll be able to ask one of our students and they'll be able to guide you on the best practices in order to achieve that. No, but that is insane. And I think just the sheer capacity of it, the sheer, I think, availability of resources that's available is, is phenomenal. And as an entrepreneur, thank you. That is that is an amazing resource to have. And I, and I look forward to seeing the amazing things that are going to come out of it and the absolute brilliant productions. And as you said, animation and growth that our entrepreneurship community is going to see. But kind of delving back and kind of turning the clock a bit, I'm very curious to see how you've become this person who's actually managed to coordinate all of this, who's, be, who's able to bring so much value to our community here uh, as an in, in the entrepreneurship space. And 
it's very fascinating because as I was kind of reading up a little bit about some of the stuff you've done, you have been someone who has been active in, in helping small businesses, in, in, in nonprofits in a sense. You, you really understand the community and, and bringing the, the importance of going online, of digitalization and, and of changing things up in a way. So I'm so curious whether this was something that you thought of when you were an undergrad like me and many of the, the students that you serve. Did you know you're going to go on to lead all of these phenomenal things, help so many people? Uh, really be a kind of like the forefront of digital marketing and all that. Did you know this or were you lost and confused like the rest of us? Like, like tell me how, what undergrad you thought life would be like in a sense. Oh man, if I want to retrace my undergrad steps, uh, media and marketing wasn't even something that I was getting into yet. I was more or less, I was actually going to school for mechanical engineering and civil engineering. And really? then, uh, yeah, so actually I was going to be an engineer. Um, and when I went to school, I went to school um, and when I took the tour of my campus, they had this television studio that was built in there. And I think at the end of the tour, I went to the registrar's office and changed my entire major. So that's when I knew I was going to the TV video production and doing documentary filmmaking. But we got to go back a little further than that, actually, to high school and middle school, because when I was in high school and middle school, I was doing a bunch of art related things. So I was doing art like I took uh, art classes at the local museum. I took them at Carnegie Mellon. I was part of their high school art program. So I always thought I would do art, but I thought I would do art in the sense of like a secondary kind of hobby type of thing because I need an actual job, right? I needed to do something that was actually a meaningful job. And then when I got to college, I decided to switch over to that because that's when I realized I could take all the art skills I have and then I could monetize them and actually do something in the creative space. Now, in terms of helping small businesses, that didn't come first either. I actually thought I was gonna go to school to understand TV video production because all my time was spent drawing so I was drawing, I was making my own comics, I was doing all this stuff. So I thought I would be an animator at like Nickelodeon or Pixar. Um, that did not happen. I was overly ambitious because I tried to apply for a senior internship my freshman year of school. That didn't happen because I thought my, my portfolio of all the art I did and going to Carnegie Mellon to do all this stuff would be great. But then it made me realize that I don't need the internship for that. So I'll do it on my own. Um, and I'm very headstrong in that way. So a lot of where this kind of picks up is me being like, fine, if they don't want to give me the shot, I'll do my own thing. Um, didn't really get involved with small businesses until after graduation, really. While I was in undergrad, I was more focused on picking up all these different skill sets and everything, trying to amass a bunch of stuff. So I picked up graphic design. I picked up web design as a complement to video production because this is right at the cusp when a lot of us jumped off in MySpace and started getting on Facebook. And then YouTube started rising in popularity and so on. So it became more or less like, how do I take all this video from being just on TV because now we're transitioning to web and social media. And that's where I realized like, okay, there's opportunity here because there's so many mom and pop businesses that don't even have video. They don't even have graphic design. They don't even have any social media, a website, nothing. And I was like, there's a market there. Not so much working with established corporations that need one-off projects for spec work, but taking like Bob's tool shop and putting it on Facebook and then taking like, you know, so-and-so's flower shop and being like, you need to be on Twitter or Facebook and have a presence so people can find you this way. And the company that I launched, Dark Horizon Studios, around 2011 came after my third internship. And then I took half of the people from my internship and then half the people from my class and we made this company, all Pittsburgh natives. And we only made the company because you only had two options, work for local news or work for local sports. That's all you could do. I didn't want to do either because they're dead-end jobs. And you know what? You guys can repeat this as much as you want back then in my mind and actually still to this day, unless you're climbing that ladder in the sports space or the news space, you're kind of a cameraman for your whole life, essentially. Maybe you're like cameraman two or three, you get to pick what you do, but you're essentially a cameraman your whole life. Um, so I did this on my own because I didn't see any other avenue. And so I decided to get into this. And also my dad is entrepreneurial. He had two companies he started when we were younger. Um, I always joke with him about this because he had a company where he started delivering cat and dog food to elderly people. They would pay him a little bit of a premium to go to like Petco, PetSmart, pick up their food, and they would do that on a weekly basis. And he had about 50 customers. And then fast forward like 20 years, and then you realize now that we're in, um, what's it called? Um, truly exist. <laughs> Which is like, I always joke with him. It's like, if you had held out for like five years, you probably could have found a Chewy to some degree. 
Oh man, but when you say it like that, that but oh gosh, yes, he was way ahead of the curve then. But huh? Yeah. And so I, um, that that was kind of like at least for me that was um, I saw my dad doing it, I saw everybody else doing it, and I was like, I could do it too. So I thought, all right, if I can't find anything in Pittsburgh and I want to stay home in Pittsburgh, I need to make something for myself. No, I think that that's amazing in a way. And I feel like, I, I don't know, no no shade at all to anyone else, but I feel like that's the best way to start like any entrepreneurship endeavor, at least, or at least the best way to start going about it is that you want to make something for yourself and something that you love doing in a way compared to anything else. And entrepreneurship is not easy at any scale and, and you with your friends and all of that probably face that more than, than many of us on campus today learn about tell me about those beginning stages of your own entrepreneurial journey in a sense you, you mentioned it's just getting a couple of friends from the internship that you worked with from the classes that you had and, and forming something together how did that how did you guys go about things like your first few projects deciding uh, what your strategy is going to be as you go went out and approach people how did those initial decisions get made uh, when you were still very new to entrepreneurship in a sense? So yeah, can you repeat that the, the first part again? It kind of broke up a little bit at the beginning. Oh, sorry. So basically just tell us a little bit about your time as an entrepreneur and those first few initial decisions that you had to make as an entrepreneur. So how did you go about finding the, the clients in a sense? I personally am someone who works with a lot of small and medium businesses. I run a startup that digitalizes offline businesses, which is huge here in Southeast Asia, where 70% of your businesses are not online and yep. bring them online. And I know that that is a very tough market to convince in a sense to, to go to that whole uh, world of, uh, of the internet in a sense. How did you go about number one, deciding who to talk to, convincing them, and especially in the initial stages when it was still something new that you were working on, how did you make those initial decisions and stick to it? Oh man, there's a lot to cover. So my decisions for getting involved in entrepreneurship, right? Um, and I just want to preface this by saying to this day, I still plan to be involved in entrepreneurship for like the rest of my life. Um, because one, I like personal accountability and not answering anybody, <laughs> which I feel like is a good chunk of the reason why people get involved in entrepreneurship. But at least the, the first thoughts I had were I was sitting there and I already had a job with the city. This is around that time, too. Um, I had the job with PBS at Still Town Entertainment Project and I was applying to the job for the city. And if the city job hadn't popped up in between in that time frame, I was like, I got to figure out what I want to do for the next five years. Right. I just got this degree. Pittsburgh doesn't seem like the market for it, but I'm not ready to move yet for my family. But I'm also not ready to like actually commit to. The next five years of just chasing news stories or filming football games i don't want to do either of that so i sat there for like three four weeks at home and just was doodling and drawing and coming up with ideas of what i wanted to do and how i wanted to do it and i'm never going to forget this i woke up at like 1 30 in the morning one night i hopped on craigslist for whatever reason and i was just like let me see if there's equipment i can buy on craigslist right I got the first set of equipment that we ever got, which was back then Canon Rebel T3i, I think, right? Maybe even T2i, way, way, way back. Um, somebody was selling them all the way out in like Katanning. And if, if you know your PA map, Katanning is about an hour and 20 minute drive from Pittsburgh, right? I drove out to Katanning to pick up this equipment and then brought it back home. And then I had never used a DSLR camera before this. And I sat there for a week when you all you had were like creative cow tutorials in youtube and that was it to learn anything about anything and i sat there and i went through this and i was like okay i gotta take i need something i can take photos and videos so i did what anybody would do who was in my space the first projects i did were music videos and weddings that's what? all I did. yeah the first projects i did were music videos and weddings that's all i did and i did a bunch of like local artist and then in the summer spring summer i would do a bunch of wedding videos and then that's when i realized that in that moment that i could put my own sticker price on anything because i was the only one offering the service but the idea for that led to dark horizon studios because we realized that the media companies that were there were actually trying to make local people pay major market prices so for example if you wanted to get a video done in New York, right? It might cost you like 20K for your business. But if you're living in Pittsburgh, which is blue collar and like a 10th of the size of New York City, maybe even a 20, 
20th of the size of New York City, the capital isn't in the community to pay for something like that. So what we realized is that we were looking at the portfolios of all these companies and being like, our quality of work matches some of these companies that are here now trying to charge these prices. So we undercut them by 70% because we had nothing to lose. Um, so where they were paying $20,000 or saying $20,000 for video, we said, we'll do it for 3000 because for us at 21, $3,000 coming in for a video, splitting it up between us and making it like 700 a video. That's pure profit for us. You know, we don't have to worry about it. Plus the way we set it up was we all still have full-time jobs, but we could do these things on nights and weekends. And then, um, to your point about trying to figure out how to work with businesses and try to get them online, it was more, wasn't getting them online and saying why they need to get online. It was more about their peers leaving them behind because this was at the point when social media getting on social media was first mover advantage. So like if you got on social media first, when Facebook was still great and still a fun thing to use, um, this is pre Instagram, this is pre TikTok, pre Snapchat, pre all that. When you got on Facebook and Twitter, you were getting on Facebook mainly just to create essentially a fake landing page and just say we exist in the world. Right. But what happened was a lot of these business owners had no concept of social media because they're in their fifties and sixties. They're never going to get it. Um, so even trying to educate them on why they should do it didn't work. So what we became was a content machine that took all these things, created them. And then later on down the line, we actually owned their social media channels to get the content out for them. So it became less of a content creation agency and actually more of a marketing agency, which then made me realize that I had a hard skill in graphic web and video production that could be used for a soft skill like marketing. And so what I thought was going to be television video production and working behind the camera my whole life kind of transitioned into talking about the bigger picture overall and then working solely in marketing for the next since 2014. Yeah. <laughs> to now. <laughs> No, 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 that, that's amazing. And I, and I definitely, as I said, I definitely see the potential. It's something that I that I face every every day and I speak to people on every day in a sense. So I definitely believe that it, it's a brilliant idea, that it works. Tell me a little bit about some of the stories or the people that you met that were the most meaningful in kind of like helping them go or, or like the most meaningful projects that you worked on that period of time. Like as, like as I said earlier, you worked on so many things from commercials the documentaries, the, these projects with like B2B businesses in a sense, which ones or which one, if you had to pick one, was the most meaningful to you in a sense at that time? Which project was the most meaningful? Yeah, which project was the most meaningful? Um, I would say the most meaningful project that I, wow. Um, so back in that time frame, I earned my first producer credit for PBS we produced a award-winning segment as a junior in college uh, on this local competition in Pittsburgh. It's the Midwinter Soup Classic. And what it is is that about 50 or 60 businesses put on their best soup, but the proceeds from the competition go to the small businesses that are also on the same block. So for the entire day, it's more like a duo pairing of like, here's the restaurant, here's a small business. All the soup and stuff that you buy here from this restaurant 100% goes to support this small business as a local neighbor thing. Um, and then there's an internal competition between People's Choice for Best Soup and then local chef magazines and other culinary magazines voting the best soup overall, right? And it's this huge trophy and it's bragging rights for a year. So every yeah. year this came around, these restaurants would gear up and crack their knuckles and they would just kind of trash talk each other. And you have like fenders and like, you know, recurring dynasties of mom and pop restaurants that are like, we've won it five times in a row, we've won it three times in a row, or we've won five out of the last 10 years or whatever. And you have crowd favorites, you have fan favorites because they're like local visitors and they're like mainstays at these restaurants. We did this whole piece, it was over February weekend. Um, actually, it coincidentally fell on the weekend of the Super Bowl, the one year, so we oh. called it the Midwinter Super Bowl Classic. That was the working title for the segment. It was my first producer credit. Um, it was cool because I got to put that on my resume, throw that on LinkedIn that I actually produced something for broadcast television. Um, but that was one of those pivotal things right there. Be like, oh, we could do this on our own. <laughs> we don't have to do this through the studio or whatever. We could do this on our own. The other thing that I did around that time is I put out three documentaries um, all about Pittsburgh related things. And then one documentary about a trip I took over to Germany 
which we did a documentary on religion. So around that time, I had four documentaries and I had one television producer credit under my belt. So at 20 years old, it's feeling very arrogant <laughs> and very much like I can do anything and you guys can't stop me and I'm going to bum rush my way through all of this. No, that's that's insane though. Okay, the, the soup thing, I'm still getting chills on that. I can just imagine that the small business rivalry, but the, but all of those things are phenomenal in a way. But, and, and you definitely must have a talent for, for doing so many things at such a young age and, and being successful at least like getting it out there in a sense, which in itself is a huge... I would say deal to to bring something to life in a way that's that's what filmmaking and, and creating all of these forms of media is um all right resuming in a way um let me just take a breath so one of the things that i really liked that you said was was kind of about that trial by fire process and i think that that is very very telling of, of an entrepreneur's learning curve and anything because you really don't know it or even if you know it in theory it's different when you actually apply it and especially things like marketing it's it is a whole world by itself in a way there, there is no DYDX or A plus B equals C. You, it is something that can be unique each time and coming up with those strategies and even for small businesses or, or, or large studios alike never works 100% all the time or at least it's, it's hard to think about. For, in your experience in a way, how do you start discovering the underlying thread or, or, or maybe the core principles to develop those strategies? Because as you were saying, you were working with the, this group of maybe did not know about this in a way as well as you did and at the same time it's uh, the world of the marketing is evolving ever so much faster <laughs> with the digital age so how did you start or, or at least continuously start figuring out what were the underlying things that worked so that you could replicate that strategy for others gotcha so what i realized at least in all those experiences is that one of the things that was missing was a brand vision and voice um this was at a time where, and admittedly, you know, I didn't have a background in marketing or anything, but I'm realizing that my skill set kind of bleeds over in the marketing. So while I'm learning this, I'm reading about all these things as well. Um, a lot of the jobs I had between 2015 and 2018, there wasn't really a, they didn't have any direction, so to speak, no brand direction, no guiding principles, no strategy, no anything. So in a lot of the conversations we would have with a lot of the leadership teams, it just felt more roundabout. And we were having meetings to have the meeting about the thing that we talked about. And they just kind of felt like it was going nowhere. Um, so the first one I had for Running Wine Valley SBCA, I was in charge of digital marketing. So email, web, social, all those things. And while I'm making all these assets and everything, I started realizing that I was just making to make. Like there was no consistency with anything I was posting. There was no consistency with anything I was creating. Nothing with the wild messaging. And the other thing too about it that was kind of infuriating at that point, but I didn't realize how infuriating it was until much later, was that we were just taking creative copy, but then the the leadership team would just kind of go through and redline everything. So by the time something needed to be posted, it was like five minutes before you had to add everything else to it and get it done. And it felt like that every single day. And I thought like, man, we have no standards, no practices, no nothing. And then that led me to start making documentation about like, okay, we should start submitting everything in this time frame. We should have this as evergreen content. We should have this in terms of like, why do we exist? What do we exist for? Who's our ideal customer? Who are we targeting? What is our, our community demographics? Who in this area should be coming here frequently? Who doesn't come here frequently? Who, and then I'm speaking all this in the scope of the Brandywine Valley SPCA. Who should come here? Who shouldn't come here? What are key things about why they come here? Is it because we have kittens? Is it because we have puppies? Like what's the draw? Like how are we doing this? And that led to a lot of questions and I asked too many questions and I got fired. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm sorry. Yeah. like yes, yes, yes. So no, no, I'm sad. No, okay. No, no, I got fired because I'm gonna. Say, I've been fired four times. I've been fired four times, and I've been fired four times uh, for various reasons. But more or not, all of them have come to this thing of like, I know more than you, um, because it's more like. I was brought in for a specific thing. You asked me about the specific thing. I went through this, all through these things with you. And then it became this whole thing of like me trying to put my ideas out there and trying to present my, my principles, my framework and everything. But at the end of the day, it is their business, it is their organization, everything. So it became this clashing headbutting thing of like what you think you might know because you're leading the organization, but maybe you're more focused on too much of a high level view. So we're, we're all on the ground floor and we're kind of focused on the day-to-day -day and how we interact with people. 
it even went down to the point of like saying like we don't even have branded t-shirts as part of this organization for people to wear so we can associate ourselves with them and then we are not practicing things like customer experience right we're not practicing these things and doing all these stuff so i'm not sure how we're supposed to increase the number of people that come through if there's no discernible faces that are associated with the organization um don't even have a spokesperson no logo no nothing right it's just a name that's it um I kind of went through this whole process of how much that would take to build up and they weren't happy with the time frame. And I'm like, well, I'm just one person. So it went to a heated argument and then I got, you know, I got fired, which is fine. And every time I got fired, it's been for a reason, <laughs> a reason one way or another. Um, the, the other jobs that I went through and did this too with, it was more like every time I did it, I tried to do it in a different approach to kind of illustrate the point about why this was needed. But what I realized is that there's this theme across small businesses for the most part, and even some of the bigger businesses and including startups as well, is that marketing is an afterthought. It's always an afterthought. It's always, it's either an afterthought in the sense that all the time and expenses and materials went to crafting the actual product. And then when it's time to get it out there, there's no strategy or vision or how to get this out there. Like, great, you made this, but did you make it for you or did you make it with an audience in mind? Or it's the inverse where the marketing is so expansive and wide and it's so flashy and everything that by the time you get to the actual substance of what it is, it's crap. So there's no clear in-between from what I've seen, at least on, on that side from the small mom and pop side of things. Um, and then trying to find a way to be like, okay, all these things need to be done in order to accomplish this. And what I realized is a lot of people don't want to take the time to build those things out. If something takes six months to build out, it's going to take six months. But people just naturally want things to happen tomorrow like that. And I felt like part of this was as time went on and social media became more of a official tool for businesses to use along with the web and other things, this instantaneous on-demand thing of like, if I put it on the internet, people should see it, right? So why aren't people seeing it? And I'm like, where are my one billion customers? Yeah. It's like, that's not how none of this works. That's how none of this works. Um, and I had to learn that too, actually. It's just like, you know, because there's a difference between you posting to your like 1,000 followers on Facebook versus you actually creating copy, creating visuals, creating themes and campaigns and everything via Facebook to reach out to a wider audience. And normally for that latter part, there's always money involved to an extent. And when you start talking dollars and start putting dollars towards these things, then people can start itemizing line by line how much marketing actually takes. And then they're like, can we like slash that by like 80% but still do everything? So it becomes one of those things where it's like, no, um, because you had these milestones in place and this is what you need to do to achieve these milestones or you need to be happy with expanding the time frame and not getting to these milestones for some time because you're listening to the amount of money you wanna put in to actually get to this point. Um, but yeah, no, it was one of those things where out of all those jobs and all those things, before I landed at Penn, um, I learned to hard code. I built an app. I built websites. I built landing pages. I built emails from HTML. Um, I learned about a bunch of different software. I learned about most of the Adobe Creative Suite, most of the third-party tools that I use um, to the point now where if somebody were to ask me, oh, have you worked with like InDesign or Illustrator? I was like, yeah, I've done it. And I, it's it's a difference between, and I and this isn't meant to point any fingers, but there's a difference when it comes to something. Let's use Photoshop, where you're creating a meme, for example, to post on social media, versus you creating a visual system that has all your collateral and it falls neatly and mirrors the feel, look, and tone of your brand, and working it with it that way. And I think a lot of people when they think of these things and they think of graphic design, web design, et cetera, the instantaneous aspect of the internet itself makes people think like, oh, it will take you like an hour to design all those things. And I'm like, no, there's designing for fun. And then there's designing with purpose and designing with purpose and doing things with purpose, especially when you're creating things in marketing takes time. <laughs> it takes time. It's not an instant reward thing. Even now, like, you know, moving forward a little bit and I'm sorry to go off track here. Um, we took a team from the test kitchen and venture lab out to Rittenhouse Square to do some A-B testing with the ice cream they made. And it's like old fashioned boots on the ground, set up a table, give out free samples, have them fill out the Google form so you can get the feedback you need. 
and figure out how to market it that way. It's things like that that I don't see that much of. I see a lot of people kind of relying more on like, well, if I get a thousand followers on social media on Instagram, that means a thousand people will buy my product. Or if I get like, you know, if if 300 people sign up for my newsletter, that means 300 people will pay for my newsletter, right? Like, no, no, mm -mm, mm. they might be interested, but I guarantee you're going to spend. I guarantee they're doing this or this. It's like somewhere in those audiences is your actual customer or your selection of customers that will buy what you're selling. The problem is everybody gets so caught up on the numbers and everything that they don't do anything with the numbers after the fact. It's always, I, I'll give a great example of this. When I see people who have 500, 600,000 followers on Instagram, but they only have like 600 likes per post. <laughs> <laughs> you're like hmm, something's not right in this off. math if, if it's off it's like if all these followers were really what got you all the metrics and everything anybody that cracks over 10,000 20,000 30,000 followers should be able to quit their job because you're telling me everything that you're able to sell through your social media accounts should net you enough of an ROI and enough of an income for you to walk away and that way everybody would be an entrepreneur everybody would be selling or hustling or hacking off whatever project product or service they have it's not the case and also the other part of this too is that a lot of people don't realize that they feel the need to be everywhere and maybe that was true at one point in time but it was good to be everywhere when there were so little options you needed to be on tv and radio and the newspaper because that was all you had you needed to be on facebook because nobody was really on twitter and all like that but facebook became that place so you really only have four channels now you're telling everybody that you need to have a snapchat and a TikTok and this and that and the other the problem with that is that's all well and great, but just to do a shotgun scatter blast approach of where you need to be at in terms of where your company or your brand should live means that now you have to own every one of those channels and you have to constantly and consistently produce content that mirrors your brand across multiple platforms. And you're never going to be able to do that as one person. You're never going to be able to do that as a two, three person team. That is an entire team effort. Like the Wharton School, for example, right? All of my colleagues... There's about 80 of us, eight zero across Wharton that generate a lot of the content you see come out of the Wharton school. And that's one school out of the 12 at Penn. So just imagine how many people are in marketing and comms at Penn generating content, not just for the school itself, but for the individual programs that come out of each school. There's hundreds of us. We are literally a small army that generates this content that comes out of Penn. And I'm just like, that's kind of what you need. And then sometimes it doesn't even feel like enough because there's so much that happens at Penn that you're constantly like every day, it's like somebody has something new to share. Somebody has something new to post, to market, to kind of get out the word about, to raise awareness, to, you know, whatever needs to be done. But that's what it feels like. And it's like some of these things are easier for one person to do, especially if you're very tiny starting out. Sometimes you need a team. Sometimes you need an army. You, But I'd say, I'd say all that to say... All these different experiences, all this balancing back and forth between jobs and everything, it definitely teed me up for where I'm at at Penn now. You know, you're going to make me cry with this this whole thing because I, I am terribly guilty of this in a sense of uh, of everything that you just mentioned. So so now I, I'm going to go ahead and contemplate my life after this interview. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I, I feel terrible. Like, thank you so much. But like, oh, gosh. For, for simple-minded people like me who have now realized after listening to you that we have made tremendous mistakes in our lives and our businesses and, and our entire marketing and brand strategy needs to be overhauled. What would your top three tips be for small businesses and startups that currently do not have a, a kind of a salient strategy to their marketing and branding efforts? And what are the first three things that they can do now to at least try to start the engine in a way? I think that the first three things I can think of, and this is before we even get to social media and all that kind of stuff. Um, my my first question for all is, is like, why do you exist? And I that sounds cold on its face, but it's it's more like, why do you exist? I I mean I see we see we see tons of products that come out every day, and I'm sure you scroll through Instagram and gotten those inline ads and other things. It's like, who made this and for what and for why? Like, why, why does this even exist as a product? I can't find an audience that would want this product for any reason whatsoever. And I'm in, in that mind, I know I'm not the target audience, but there are some things out there that are just like, 
and this is for every business owner, it's like, why are you making this product and why does it exist? Because here's the thing. If you're doing your research about your market, about your industry and where you're trying to find it and cut into and finding your customer, all that will be answered for you and your why you're creating something. Because most times it feels like people are creating things out of the personal inconvenience they're suffering, but not doing the research to go out and be like, wow, 1,000 people feel the same way as me. And if 1,000 people feel the same way as me, just by scaling up the population size, that means there's at least a million people that feel the same way I feel about this particular issue. That might be my market, right? So that's one. Two, it's always the brand itself and messaging. People seem to get confused about branding and marketing. And it happens a lot. And branding and marketing are not the same thing. They work interconnected with one another, but they're two different concepts altogether. Branding is more about the tone, the voice, the feel, the emotion, everything connected to it, right? You want all these things associated with the brand. You want it to rub off on the customer. You want the customer, the consumer, your audience to be like, when I think of this thing, I think of this brand, right? When I think of sportswear, I think of Nike. I think coffee, Starbucks, fast food, McDonald's, right? Why do I think those things? Why do I want those things? It's like, well, when I'm thinking I want something that's, you know, I want quality, comfort, style, something that I can wear to the gym, something I can wear outside, et cetera. Probably leaning more towards Nike, right? In terms of that, I want something that's like fashionable, but still form and function, you know? And I see that with a lot of companies where it's like, this product should appeal to me, but something about your branding feels off. I don't like it. I'm not, I'm not resonating with it. Like for example, the best brand companies are Apple user. Like Apple is a great example of this, right? We know Apple is just your run of the mill laptop, but that's not why we care about Apple. We care about Apple because of the experience that Apple gives us, right? And the experiences we get out of Apple are feeling part of a community of other Apple users, a feeling of the fact that when we work with Apple products, they're simple to use, they're easy to use, they're clean, they're minimal, they're somewhat dynamic in their approach and everything, but you can kind of differentiate yourself as an Apple user from everybody else by the community itself in the sense of that, like Apple users like a clean workflow. They like an integrated system. They like things to be one touch, you know, like Apple music. Great. Right. Or some of these iOS updates, like, you know, uh, the Apple wallet update. Great. I can pay by just tapping my phone. Awesome. All that's done with convenience and ease and reliability and when you think about Apple and what Apple signifies to a lot of people, it's it used to be Apple was the creative brand, right? Like you got an Apple laptop because you have Photoshop and all these other things and they've been in real world PC and then out of the time they caught up. But Apple is a great example of something where it's like, I'm an Apple user, I'm an Apple power user. I have an iPhone, a MacBook, I'm on my MacBook right now. I have an iPad, I love the brand. I don't think I'll ever be an Android user, right? But that's because there's something about Apple that speaks to me as a brand user that I like it so much that I love it enough to actually recommend it to other people. So now I'm, a, I'm an ambassador of the brand. Um, but in that too, with marketing, branding is all about tone, vision, voice, and feel. Marketing is taking all of that and you telling me why I will experience all those things when I buy your product. That's what I want to see. It's like, I will feel all these things. I think the best example of some of the messaging of that actually comes from fitness. It actually comes from things that are like dietary in nature, like Weight Watchers, Noom, you know, City Fitness, et cetera. It's like our vision at City Fitness, our brand is fitness, health, wellness, all these things. The marketing to me is that if you sign up for a City Fitness gym membership after a few weeks, you will feel how these people work. Yeah, yeah, okay. I see, I see that difference. All right, makes, yeah, makes sense. That, that's the difference. And then the third thing comes down to content and the fact of the matter is to your to the point I made earlier, making a bunch of content for all these channels is fun at first, right? Because you just want the awareness. Just pick one or two channels and just own those channels, and you'll know what channels you need to be on when you do your market research, right? If I'm targeting Gen Z, for example, why am I advertising on Facebook for a Gen Z product? Okay. Yeah. I should be probably diving more into Instagram, TikTok, and Snapchat, and even YouTube to an extent, right? To do my marketing. 
However, if I wanted to own a channel to start with, pick the channel that makes the most sense based on what you're marketing, right? I work in a very visual field, right? Mm -hmm. I shouldn't be on Twitter marketing anything visually. It's not meant for that. I should be on Instagram, utilizing everything on Instagram to push the message about my product if it's highly visual, right? Instagram is great in the sense for things that are immediately visual, all consumer goods, right? However, that being said, there's some instances where maybe I don't need to be on this platform. I should actually be on this platform because that's where my audience lives. So when you're thinking about your marketing and all this other stuff, part of the conversation should be like in your ideal customer profile. If I say, okay, I'm building a alcohol brand, right? Maybe I'm doing something kind of like white claw, but it's my own thing. But I know my demographic is probably 25 to 40 year olds right? They live in urban environments. They make 80K a year, maybe higher. They tend to go to happy hour. They dress in a certain way. They drink certain foods. They have certain affinities that relate to this. So if they're drinking my spritzer, my White Claw-esque beverage, right? They probably shop at Whole Foods, shop at Target. They probably work at a city fitness. They're into a moderate lifestyle of happy hours, et cetera. I've just painted a picture for you. And if they're living in urban areas, they're probably more liberal leaning and so on. I just painted a picture for you of what a customer could look like. And where would I find somebody with all those traits that matches this demographic? Probably Instagram. Mm -hmm. So it's something to consider when you do this real mapping. Yeah. No, no, but it, and for me, it makes a lot of sense. And I really, and, and I think again, that just really valuable quick tips that we, we, we can kind of think about. I'm going to think about it after this and I'm going to apply it. And I think it's also a good segue to, to show definitely why you are the most qualified person in your role right now at Venture Labs in a sense, just the, 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 the thought that you bring into kind of the whole world of marketing and communications is unparalleled. And, and I think, as I said in the beginning of the interview, we're very fortunate to have you at Venture Labs as a student. Like, like thank you for, for setting all of this up. How did your journey with Penn Wharton Entrepreneurship I think that's what it used to be called start in a way where where did it begin and how does it evolve into the work that you're doing now sure um so 2018 so my wife was already working at penn she works actually on the other side of penn in the uh, school of medicine um wow. school of medicine and engineering actually she um her program also works with startups that come out of penn but they're faculty focused ip that they're cultivating into commercializable vehicles and she does health tech, so a lot of medical device development, health sciences, et cetera. Um, she was already here, and I was coming to pick her up from campus one day, and I was walking around, and it's like, I told her, it'd be funny if I got a job at Penn, right? Because I was kind of feeling eh about the job I had already, and I was like, I should see if there's an opening at Penn. And then two weeks later, the opening for Associate Director of Communications opened up at Penn One Entrepreneurship. So I put it in, um, and initially I didn't get it. I did not get it at all. Um, I think I got knocked out in the first round, right, for interviews. And then something happened between Memorial Day when I applied and then like mid-June and I got a call back and then we went through interviews again. I guess the first wave of people didn't pan out, went through interviews again. I was like, eh, sure, why not? Um, for me, because the way I read it, it's like if I apply for a job and I don't get it, I don't feel like doing the song and dance and running around. It's like, I, I'm not gonna do this back and forth, four, five, six round interview thing. Either tell me I got it or I didn't get it. And I don't care. Um, so I did it a second time again. I was like, eh, I got a feeling about it, why not? So I did it again and then I got it, right? Um, and this was funny because this is when I didn't tell my current employer at the time that I was interviewing. Um, then I got it and then I told them that, okay, well, I work at Penn now, so I'm gone, bye. Um, and most people will frown upon that, but I want everybody to understand this is that there's a point in time where, yes, maybe you might want to go back to an employer, keep them as a contact. If you want to have that network or whatever, there are some instances, guys, where your employer might not even be a bad employer, but understand that when you're talking to somebody and you're going to something better and you're looking for better opportunities to leverage your career, and your own personal growth and development, that you don't always have to fall into the trap of saying, oh, I got to give two weeks a month or anything like that. I gave a week's notice, literally gave it that Monday. I was gone that Friday, right? Um, I was like, this is a week. We're not doing anything. Here's my laptop back. All my stuff is on there. I'm gone. Um, 
so I got here and I started August 23rd. And I'll never forget this because it was a week before all of the students came back to campus and I hadn't done anything yet. That was my orientation, the whole trial by fire thing. Every job I've had has been trial by fire. I came in and the first year it was me learning the, the layout of the land, doing all this stuff and everything. And then the executive director at the time left for Yale, right? She's now the new director for the Yale, for Psy City, for Yale Psy City. So for the Center for Innovative Thinking at Yale. Um, and when she left, it was around that time that summer, this is coming off of my first year, right? It was that, that summer where I sat there like Tangan Hall was announced and they were gonna build Tangan Hall um, and we were gonna move in there. And that summer I sat there, I was like, if we're gonna move into a new building and we're gonna merge with these other programs, we need to redo everything about entrepreneurship that I know it at Penn, right? Because one of the stigmas about Penn Warren entrepreneurship is the fact that it was tied to the Wharton School. And I'll say that because when we were talking to other students in the stakeholder interviews about Venture Lab back in 2019, 2020, we realized that a lot of them do not come here because they feel like what's for a certain school is for that school's population. So because we were nested inside the Wharton School, we actually missed out on students from nursing, from social policy and practice, from law, from medicine, because they felt like, well, this is mostly Wharton and engineers, so why are we coming here, right? And also, what else we found out was the fact that there's this cultural stigma at the university, and I'm sure it's felt to varying degree across the university, um, a Wharton versus non-Wharton kind of approach in terms of resources and what's allocated and so on. And one of the things we had to immediately demystify about entrepreneurship is saying that, oh, you need to be in business or in engineering or in education. It's for all. So that summer, I came up with the idea to rebrand Venture Lab, to make the new website, and to build out the studio. I did all three that summer. And then I sent all my plans over to the incoming executive director, who's the executive, who's the executive director now, and then the then vice dean of entrepreneurship. And to my surprise, they greenlit everything. So now I felt like, oh, great. Okay. So now I felt like I had full reign to do a bunch of stuff, right? So the entire fall 2019 into winter 2020, I was writing up all this documentation about why we need a studio, why we need this, why we need that. And then COVID hit, right? Um, yeah. yeah, so COVID hit and that didn't stop the project, but what it did do was since it threw everything else in the disarray, March to May was kind of just shot, right? Yeah, we were processing the fact that there was a pandemic, yeah. But something good did come out of that early phase of the pandemic and that was the creation of the Venture Lab Slack workspace. We made that out of uncertainty a little bit Everybody was being ripped apart. We didn't know what was going to happen. It was very chaotic. So we said we need a centralized place to actually have people communicate with one another. That was made by a student, and she was our student director. And then I jumped onto it and brought my marketing students into it. And the five of us got together and figured out how to make this thing a reality, um, to which now we've grown that space to 3,600 plus people. Um, but when we were doing all this stuff and after we got home, that summer of 2020, is when I announced that we were rebranded from PWE to Venture Lab and that the new website was on the way. Um, so going into fall 2020 into 2021, I spent a lot of time stealthily working on this website, working on this brand, working on the studio stuff and everything. And I came up with so much stuff. I have a, on November 2019, the first and original plan for the digital design studio, it's 24 pages. And it outlines all the pain points and problems about why there's no studio space on campus to do some of the things that students were asking. They wanted photos, they wanted videos, they wanted all this content, and they had nowhere to go. And I was like, this is the 60th person. I kept track of this. This is the 60th person, the 60th student team in our program to come to me about the same things. How do I make a logo? How do I make a website? How do I do this, 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 and this? And I'm like, now, I'm still in charge of giving out workshops about these things in VIP, right? And giving out these things. But then I was like, a workshop isn't cutting it because it's all theory. There's no room for them in practice. So I was like, we need a studio and I'm gonna explain why. 
there's two studios on campus in Van Pelt, right? On the third floor and then the Vital Media Lab. But what most people don't know is that that studio space is open to everybody at Penn. Literally, I could go down there and take like four cameras and then the rest of Penn cannot have those four cameras until I come back. People do not know that. I, I did not know that. So go yeah. ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I found this out because I was using that space, but then my work study students were having issues accessing equipment to do the stuff we were doing. And I was like, okay, all right. So I put this plan together. And then when Tangan Hall was built, it was supposed to be the ARVR cave, but nobody here knows ARVR. They didn't at that time. Um, <laughs> now I'm the internal person that's learning more and more about AR, VR, and NFTs in the metaverse as we move forward. Um, I built out this space to be traditional media because that's what was needed. Um, I was validated in that concept when we opened up Tangan Hall. And in this first academic year at Tangan Hall, my team has made 70 logos, 70 websites, 50 videos. Um, and we've done countless hours and email communications of like one-on-one -on -one marketing sessions, meetings, follow-ups, notes, et cetera. Um, even now in the summer, we're still getting inquiries about, can you check out my app? Can you check out my UI UX design for my app and all this other stuff? And I'm like, this is why we made the studio, right? Now with the website and the brand, that was a hard sell. Because if you notice one thing about the Venture Lab brand, um, there's no mention of Wharton or Penn or engineering or anybody in it. It just says Venture Lab, right? Yeah. That was done deliberately. Um, and that was done with the sense of that if we're going to be this interdisciplinary unified center, then no one school should be able to have such a strong dominant say on the external marketing about what this is. And that was another point of validation because when we had Penn Entrepreneurship, we maybe had about eight, 900 students actually involved in what's happening in entrepreneurship. But again, because it was within the Wharton School and so Wharton centric, it was a majority Wharton students, some engineering students, some college students, right? We went from about eight, 900 students, I would say, to at the time of the end of the academic year, 2,600 students that are actual active members of Venture Lab and using the resources in the building. And a lot of them have echoed that, oh, now that Tangan Hall's here, I don't have to go to Wharton per se or to engineering per se, I can just come here. And that's part of the marketing too behind this in the terms of demystifying entrepreneurship is making it more integrative, more inclusive, more innovative, and more interdisciplinary. And the second point, the more inclusive part of it, is really the driving point of the marketing. I got tired of seeing a bunch of white guys be the face of entrepreneurship. Um, and I've said that loudly in a lot of rooms. So a lot of the marketing that has come out this year has been focused more on stories of people of color in entrepreneurship at Penn. And I've always hold fast to this fact that you only get those type of stories when both sides of the camera are representative of that type of group. So behind the scenes, right, we have people of Black, Asian, and Latin and Indian descent that are working with us on creating all this stuff. All my work study students, they're all freshmen with the exception of Gio. He's going to be a senior. Um, but they're all working on it. And because of that, and we have that kind of like, we have that kind of team behind the scenes, we can generate those kind of stories in front of the camera. Essentially it's what you hear out of Hollywood, right? When there's no lack of diversity in the writer's room, that's what you get on TV. You get those depictions of what people look like, what they sound like, et cetera, because there's not somebody that's a vocal champion of what we actually look and sound like in the room, in the writing process. Same way applies here. The marketing is crafted majority by people of color, majority by minorities that are in entrepreneurship, because that's the only way these stories are going to get told. Um, and I feel that strongly and I will echo that strongly. And I'm using Venture Lab as a vehicle to promote more student and alumni stories that are in this space. So this past year, I've been very much focused on more stories about women founders, about black founders, about Asian founders and so on, because that's really who's actually in the program more so um, and it's, it's, it's no offense to the Warren school. It's no offense to pay or anything like that. It just does become more of like, if you keep putting out the same face over and over and over and over again, you're telling people subconsciously that this is the type of person we want coming out of this program. So need not apply.
and that's just on its face. That's just the truth. And I've said that all the way up to the dean and all the way back down. That's just what it feels like. So either we're doing a, a piss poor job at actually marketing entrepreneurship to make it feel like it's all students, or we're owning up to the fact that we want one type of person to represent our brand and what entrepreneurship is at Penn. And you've chosen that because it's the same kind of face that we see in every news article, every press release, every external media push that comes out of the university. Well, I think you've done a phenomenal job in turning that around and in, in, in really diversifying what we see on, on the brand in a sense. And for that, as a student at the College of Arts and Sciences and as an entrepreneur of color, I definitely think that I, a huge thanks is deserved in a way and a huge a wave of gratitude. Imagine it being sent your way because truly, truly, I agree that today, at least from my limited point of view, when I see my friends in the entrepreneurship world, in a sense, it is much more diverse. They do feel a lot more comfortable with the resources. And I think it is you and the, 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 the amazing team that you have behind the scenes that's actually been making that happen. So thank you so much for that. And I think I speak for all Penn students when we really appreciate the effort that's been, and, and, and I would say the deliberation that's been kind of put in the thought, the love, the energy in making it diverse and making it accessible and making it available to every single student as possible. And you have completely given me so much to think about. I assume that our audience and, and I will be rewatching this interview for many, many times to come to be able to digest it in a sense and, and retain as much info. But I really appreciate you coming on board. You have a phenomenal story. You've accomplished so much. And the way that you think about brand and marketing is just beyond, I would say, words. So I really appreciate it. And thank you for being on the show. It's been an honor having you on. No, I'm, I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy. Thank you for inviting me. And I will say this, if anybody wants to talk to me candidly about what I think about entrepreneurship and marketing and branding, and especially about representation in the space, I am happy to do so, censored or uncensored, if it leans to that. Because <laughs> more, more often than not, it leans towards the latter in terms of the conversation and how we go with that. But i um, happy to have that conversation with anybody. And um, can, I, can I mention one quick thing? Um, go ahead. So one thing I want to mention to everybody that watches this about Venture Lab this upcoming year is that we are actively working towards helping you all better identify how you come into entrepreneurship. So we didn't, we had it last year and it started working. So we're working on this year is that we have pathways now. So you don't have to be a founder to do it. It's like you don't have to come to experience entrepreneurship and say, hey, I have an idea for a company. That's not the only way to get an entrepreneurship. There's five pathways. There's the founder one, which we all know about start a company, become a CEO, do that thing. There's the joiner pathway, which is actually a thing like getting up there in popularity. If you like entrepreneurship, but you want to join a company that's in its early stages, that is an option. So maybe you're coming in with a marketing background like me or a legal background, and they need a chief legal officer, chief marketing officer, you can join them then. There's the investor track, just like it sounds like students that want to learn about VC and investing. There's the track that I identify with the most, which is the Explorer track. And the Explorer track in this sense is that in Tangen Hall right now, there's nine studios and labs. You do not need to be involved in entrepreneurship as in having a company to work in those spaces. You do not. What you need to have is just a healthy interest in exploring and picking up different skill sets. So for example, if you guys ever wanted to learn Photoshop, you can come into the digital design studio you can take our six-week graphic design course. I can get you up to speed in Photoshop in six weeks about how to create stuff on your own. If you wanted to learn how to use advanced fabrication tools like CNC cutters, laser cutters, et cetera, you can do that, come in and take a haul and learn that, and then just have that skill. You don't need to have a company or an idea behind it. Um, I say that to say because that's like one of the hidden gems of Tangen Hall is that I've had students come in and they've bounced around lab spaces and now they're just like a master of all, so to speak. Um, and they're actually more well-rounded than some of the students that are just founders, just joiners, et cetera, because they might've gone through and be like, okay, I picked up all these skills as an explorer. Now I'm joining this company in this capacity. Then I've learned enough about what I wanted to do out of entrepreneurship that I've seen how my skills and the inner workings, now I'm starting my own company. And those students and those teams usually are the ones that you guys kind of see go on towards the end of the year and the start challenge and beyond pen and start like raising series a series b etc because they've been amassing all these different skills through the program 
and they've touched all the different programs. And then now they're leaving Penn with a fully realized, firmly established venture and concept. No, no, I think uh, I'm a little, I'm going to re rethink which path I'm in now and just kind of wait for that announcement so that I can. The check Explorer out the pathway is more fun. I'm just saying that <laughs> the Explorer pathway in my mind is the most fun one because again, you can come up to my studio and play with the equipment. You can go over to Taylor Caputo studio and learn mechatronics and electronics. You can do a bunch of stuff without actually having to have an idea for adventure. And that's supposed to be our attempt to say, hey, you don't got to have an idea. You don't even need to have a company yet. But if you want to do something in robotics, if you want to do something in cooking or in design, why don't you just come and experiment and get your feet wet first? And if you like it, then we can talk about how you can do the actual tracks. That is so much more fun. Ah, okay. Am I allowed to do both? Like, um, I'm really yeah, yeah, one yeah. Okay, all right, thank you. We'll, you, can, we'll you, can jump. you can jump across all five. The la Oh, you know what, five. The Navigator one is the other one I missed. The Navigators are actually responsible for building the ecosystem at Penn. Hmm. Yeah, so we know the ecosystem. That sounds cool. <laughs> the ecosystem at Penn from our research is a little fractured, and it's really because it's been a little bit of duplication happening across different schools. Penn is both centralized and decentralized in the sense that like, yes, we're a university, but the schools kind of do their own thing four out of five days of the week, right? Because of that, you see a lot of duplicates of programs and resources specifically for those students. Um, the navigators are really about connecting the ecosystem and rebuilding it to an extent. So ideally what we would like to see is that when you come to Tangent Hall, that is square one. You come into Tangent Hall, you get all the basics, all the essentials, the foundational stuff. And then to really make it more expansive and more rewarding for you, you go to phase two, which is actually going to the school that you need the resources from. And then being teed up enough to ask the right questions, the right, you know, get the right information and build out that way. A great example of this is like if you came to Venture Lab now with a health tech startup idea, you shouldn't even be talking about the health tech aspect of it yet. You're not ready to talk to clinicians and physicians and doctors and so on about what their input is, how they can benefit. You should be focused on, here's my idea, here's my venture, here's my hierarchy, here's my founder structure, here's my tax structure, all that other stuff, right? When you're ready to have your MVP and you've done a little bit of field testing with it and you're about to leave Venture Lab, then that's where we can say, okay, your next jump is to go to the School of Medicine and go talk to those folks instead of you going to the school of medicine after class with the idea for your venture and then getting mad or feeling some pushback about why they're not ready to help you because you have nothing there for it yet. So the way we want this to be set up from the navigator perspective is that all student and alumni entrepreneurship questions come through Venture Lab first, and then we can guide you and direct you out to the schools that can best help you and are equipped to help you in those latter phases. No, 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 that, that's really smart and definitely something. Please go and check out Venture Lab's website. Please go and check out their newsletters and then and, and get involved in the work that they're doing. If you guys are on campus, drop by, say hi. And I truly appreciate all the resources that are being put out there. So make sure you guys make the most out of it. And with that, I think our interview to today is drawn to a close. Uh, once again, I am super grateful and super psyched to have you on the show. I think that this is a very meaningful interview for people, not just on campus, on Penn's campus, but everywhere in a way, because there's just so many gems that you can pick out of it. And with that, thank you. I hope you had as much fun as I had talking to you, speaking yeah. in today's session in a sense. And with that, to our audience, we, we are so thrilled to have you with us again this Thursday. And if you enjoyed today's session, make sure to like, comment, tell us how you felt, and we'll see you again next Thursday, as always, at 10 p.m. Bye. You're listening to Changing Reality. Changing reality, where we bend reality all across the world. Only on WQHS Radio.